The statements and views expressed on the Voices in Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices in Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. We're here to learn about the transformational potential of, of vulnerability theory and how it is already shaping public policy and discourse around the world. I'm your host, Mangala Kinesen. Today, I'm grateful to have health law scholar Matthew B. Lawrence here on the show as my guest. Matt, thank you so much for being here. Effective July 1st, 2020, Matt Lawrence will be joining us at Emory Law as an associate professor, where he will be teaching health law courses and legislation and regulation for one else this fall. Matt is currently assistant professor at Penn State Dickinson Law and also serving as a special legal advisor to the U.S. House of Representatives Budget Committee. He has a wealth of legal experience in the federal government, having worked on healthcare regulatory issues at DOJ and OMB during the Obama and Trump administrations. Matt is interested in health law, fiscal administrative law, and addictions. So let's get started. In 30 seconds, how would you describe vulnerability theory? This is your elevator speech. Well, Mangala, I might fail the elevator speech. Uh, I'm really excited to be here and uh, can sometimes drone on. So I apologize in advance to podcast listeners, but trust that they're listening at 1.5x or maybe 2.0x or something like that. Um, I, I tend to think in metaphors, and there was a case I worked on when I was at the Department of Justice uh, in the Medicare Part D program. So this is health insurance uh, for pharmaceuticals for people in the Medicare program, age 65 and disabled. And um, Medicare Part D is run through private insurers. It's one of those privatized entitlement programs. And there was a private insurer participating in Medicare Part D that um, basically tried to cut corners in how they processed claims and went a couple of months wrongfully denying people's claims all the time. So uh, one of the beneficiaries, there were hundreds of thousands, and they'd go to the uh, pharmacy for their uh, antiretroviral medicines, uh, heart medicines, and they'd be told, nope, that's denied. There's a prior authorization requirement, or there'd be something else which there was not and which was against the law. Uh, and that went on a couple months. Nobody really noticed. And then a, a doctor in Florida had two patients this happened to, reported it up the chain. It went up to... Uh, the agency that oversees this. A week later, the insurer is cut out of the program. They're out of the program. Everybody's moved into a new program where hopefully they can get their medicine. And I got to work on this because over the next two years, that insurer, the company, sued, I think, at least five times. It, it was suing all over the place. It was getting a lot of justice, uh, spending a lot of time in court, getting many days in court, uh, suing about all sorts of different things, due process rights, administrative law, uh, and uh, they, 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 they weren't winning the suits, but they were bringing them. And then I remember, you know, I was in practice, and this is part of what kind of drew me into academia. And in the argument in the Ninth Circuit, in one of these cases, one of the judges, you know, kind of heard the story, was, you know, um, worried about the patients and said to the Department of Justice attorney, what, you know, I understand this insurer is appealing and we'll decide about their appeal, but what about all these patients who for two months weren't getting their retroviral medicines, weren't getting this, you know, has anyone checked in that they're okay? What were the harms that they suffered? Uh, and the answer was kind of like, oh yeah, good question. You know, there's really nothing going on with that. And the truth was, I'm not aware there was any ever a class action, that there was ever anything uh, on behalf of several hundred thousand people who were um, uh, suffering wrongfully, maybe some in small ways, other in big ways uh, for a couple of months. 
Uh, so, so there was no attention paid to that couple of hundred thousand people, but there was all of this attention paid to the one insurer. And uh, to me, that is a kind of a metaphor for uh, the benefit of vulnerability theory that, that we often think about things in the kind of individualized, uh, rights-based, um, market-oriented approach that, that produces you know, a lot of process for that insurance company. Uh, but we think about things um, in that way and miss um, uh, something like, you know, several hundred thousand people, maybe many of them suffering very small harms, probably many of them sick and not in a position to appeal and complain and things about that. And, uh, you know, I, the, the 32nd version, if you've heard that story, which listeners now have, of what vulnerability theory is to me is, is, it is an alternative way of conceptualizing and analyzing the world that focuses in places very different uh, from uh, where are kind of some traditional and some existing uh, alternatives think about the world and uh, thereby produces a lot of really useful insights um, and, and gets at truths we would miss otherwise. Thank you. That was a good answer. Can you tell me a bit about how your practical experience informs your academic career and how you teach in the classroom? Because that was a bit of an answer, but I'm really excited that you're teaching like RAG this fall. Like just because of your background, I think that you're gonna have so much to offer students. I'm happy to talk about that. I think you just got to hear it. Uh, I really love to bring stories into the classroom. I, I personally think often in terms of metaphors and, and stories. Uh, I'm also, as a past litigator, very aware of the power of narratives and stories uh, to influence how people see the world. Uh, I often thought when I was in practice, if you control the narrative, if you control what we think about and when we think about it, you, you can win. Uh, I'll give you everything else if I can control the narrative. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, in class, I try to use that for good by bringing in stories that helpfully illustrate whatever point we're talking about. Uh, and and my my practice experience is just you know it's such a useful I think I was in practice um, seven or eight years or something like that and uh, and and there's so many useful examples from that time that I love I love to bring in class and I also really love the practice of law so it's a great chance teaching law students to um, you know give them a little more insight into what the actual day to day practice of law is like. So let's get back to vulnerability theory a little bit. When we talk about it, there are a few key words that come up pretty frequently. Can you talk a little bit about what these three terms mean? The responsive state, vulnerability as a term of art, and resilience? Yes, and I'll say first that, as I guess goes without saying in a podcast, I try to be very careful when I'm writing, and, and inevitably you can't be as careful when speaking. So any conflicts, I invite readers and listeners, any conflicts between what I say and what might be written somewhere, I would say that the writing should certainly supersede. Uh, the responsive state describes the responsibility, uh, the collective responsibility that is really embodied through the state to help to not only address people's dependence and vulnerability and help them in the kind of traditional sense, uh, but also to develop, invest in uh, structures, systems, education that uh, um, mitigates vulnerability and makes people less, less fragile, less susceptible to uh, harm and suffering when inevitably something happens that affects them very poorly. 
And then uh, let's see, that was, that was responsive state. Uh, vulnerability we just talked about, but vulnerability in vulnerability theory refers to the universal risk we all face of harm, of death, of bodily harm, of other kinds of harm, and also the inevitability of dependence. Uh, the fact that at some point, the fact that no one is an island, uh, that no one is independent of others, and the fact that everyone is at various points in their life dependent on others, constantly interacting with others. Uh, and so in a way, I see vulnerability as a counterpoint to the kind of assumption of a classical liberal view of an autonomous individual who, is, who, who can be free of others. Uh, and then uh, resilience is a term we've used a couple times, and I think a really important concept that I that has influenced me a lot in my work since, since reading about it and learning more about it. And resilience refers to, in my mind, a person's susceptibility to harm, given some input, given something that happens to them, and maybe a system's, a system's kind of tendency to create harms or protect against them. And that, again, is a counterpoint to thinking just about rescuing a person who has been harmed or who has been injured. Resilience is focusing on if something's going to happen to somebody, there might be tools, investments, training, connections, cultural competence, all sorts of things that make, you know, me as a white male, you know, better able to handle uh, or, or less likely to, to really suffer from particular, uh, you know, interactions or happenings than somebody else who doesn't have some of the privileges that I have. So we are right now in the middle of an incredibly global movement. Um, it's the Black Lives Matter movement. And there's a lot of vitriol against police officers. And there's also this like growing awareness and consciousness raising in addition to a massive attempt to change the way that our police force operates or perhaps what we have instead of a police force. And there's just a lot of change and a lot of societal upheaval happening right now. Do you want to talk a little bit about that as it relates to vulnerability theory or do you want to talk more about health law? And we can do both. I would like to talk about that because I think it's on everyone's mind. So I, I definitely want to say something, but I really say something much less as, as an expert than in health law where I have practice experience and I spend a lot of time studying. I will say that both with Black Lives Matter uh, and also with the coronavirus pandemic, I think people are struggling to understand why outcomes that we believe are really wrong or harmful are happening and, and how to stop those outcomes from happening. And sometimes, often, finding that simply trying to change the decision that happened right before the outcome the decision of a police officer or the decision of a person not to wear a mask or whatever it is, you know, just focusing on those decisions, if you fixed every one of them, would not necessarily get to a place that felt like justice or get, get to outcomes that felt like justice. And trying to think, you know, you'll hear the word systemic and structural and, and foundational and, and those kinds of things. And, you know, my perspective is that those aren't just buzzwords and that vulnerability theory is a really useful tool to actually think about and understand the structure, the system, the different points in the causal chain that lead to particular moments of injustice and how they interact and how legal tools, legal institutions, governance structures, people's roles in those, hierarchies, power structures, how all of that 
interacts with the different steps in the causal chain to produce the unjust outcomes and then really hopefully aspirationally to identify places where change, you know, pivot points where, where change, really meaningful change could be made most productively. And so that's my kind of, <laughs> that's a blend of me as a, as a health law scholar who uses this theory um, in, my, in my scholarship and it's just a, a you know, a, a, a human in, in the United States trying to understand what's happening. Uh, that's my, that's my blend. But, but I really do believe that um, kind of the language of vulnerability and the tools of vulnerability theory are helpful um, even, you know, outside of academia. And let's talk a little more about your research. So you have actually attended some of the vulnerability in the human condition initiative workshops in the past. How did your interest in vulnerability theory begin? Yeah, and there's a system story here too. Uh, you know, it began with Jessica Roberts, who's a wonderful law professor and kind of mentor at the University of Houston. And she directs the uh, awesome health law center there. And I actually think it's the Health Law Institute. And she was generous enough to come visit Dickinson Law when I was in my first year there at Penn State Dickinson Law. You know, we had a faculty development committee, made it possible for Maida McClough, uh, my awesome colleague at Dickinson Law, and I to have somebody to campus who we really wanted to, you know, get to know better and engage with. Uh, Jessica has worked in vulnerability theory. She's written a book, I think with Elizabeth Weeks called Healthism. And she came out and we went to dinner and we were doing what scholars do, sitting around talking about workshops and, and scholarship and things like that. And she said, you know, that these vulnerability workshops were tremendously useful, incredibly interesting, uh, and that, you know, we should kind of be on the lookout for them. So I signed up for the listserv. And then it was a couple months later, I think, and Aziza Ahmed was one of the organizers for this workshop on paternalism and liberalism, the clash of values. Mm-hmm. And I remember, uh, this is a boring story, but I thought, wow, I would love to go to that. I knew Aziza from when I was a, a fellow at the Petrie Flom Center at Harvard Law School, and, and she was an incredibly generous kind of advisor to new health law people like me. And I was like, I want to go, but I can't think of any project I'm working on that relates to this. But, and this might be the most useful tip from this podcast, I had a really long commute at the time. It was about 90 minutes each way. And I had discovered this app called Voice Dream Reader that reads any document to you that you want to upload to it. So I would drive along listening to law review articles. If you download the .doc off of Westlaw, you could just listen to them. And that was how I kind of killed the time. So I was listening to some vulnerability scholarship, you know, some Professor Feynman scholarship and driving along and just had this kind of idea thought about how the really common term social safety net that we use to refer to Medicaid and unemployment insurance and programs like that, how it was really just invoking an image of an individual who may fall and need rescue. That's really the kind of classically liberal image that vulnerability theory problematizes. And so anyway, that in the car was born my thinking, Hey, I think I could put something together for this workshop. I was lucky enough having developed an abstract to get accepted uh, and went, and that really catalyzed, I would say, my, my interest in vulnerability theory. And then, you know, I have found it as a scholar to just be incredibly useful for understanding the issues I'm trying to, to, to get into in, in, in my work. Can you tell me a little bit about, well, you mentioned this a little already, but can you describe a bit more explicitly how that was systemic or how that was part of a system or how it had to do with resilience as it relates to vulnerability? Yeah. Yeah, sure. There's a version of that story that's very much me listening to, you know, articles and coming up with an idea that's the kind of classical, you know, inventor, scholar kind of 
version. Um, but there's another version of the story where my colleagues at Dickinson Law have a very limited budget, and they decided they would devote their, you know, travel budget for development to uh, letting their two most junior scholars find someone who, who they wanted to connect with. And then them having made that choice, made and I had the opportunity, and, um, and here's a senior, established, awesome scholar, Jessica Roberts, who's willing to travel across the country to kind of help nurture two young scholars. And then she does that, and then I, you know, I learn about this, and then all of that intersects with the Vulnerability in the Human Condition Initiative, which runs these workshops, you know, with, with the point of kind of, you know, creating a garden uh, in which, uh, you know, ideas can grow. You know, in a way, there were a lot of giving people <laughs> trying to help germinate, develop, you know, someone like me, and I just kind of benefited from, from them, you know, aligning uh, in order to, to get involved. So I definitely appreciate both kind of the systemic and then when it, when it breaks down to it, it's different people in the system and, and the choices they made as well. Uh, just not the, the end user ones. That's a really nice example of how social and I guess like institutional resources impact a person's ability to respond to change. Yeah, and when I reflect on it sometimes, you can, you know, we like to tell ourselves how much we had to do with things that happened, but it's often pretty easy to tell, you know, see the, see the story very differently. Right. Yeah, like you were saying earlier, it's uh, controlling the narrative, what we think and when we think it. Yeah, and, and you know, this is, we, you know, I don't want to get too far off topic, but, but my first dean at Dickinson Law, I've had very, uh, been lucky to have great deans, and um, my first dean, Gary Gilden, would say of teaching students that our job as law professors is like throwing a pebble in a, in a pond where you'd never get to see the ripples and where they go. Um, you know, but that's actually what's, what's making things happen. And, and I, there's another metaphor that I took to heart that I think is relevant here. Let's talk about your actual research. What questions does your research attempt to answer? And what are you working on right now? You know, I think I would maybe describe it at two levels of generality. First, at a very broad level, I try in my research to connect the policy to the personal, which is like kind of connecting the 10,000 foot view down to the down to the ground and really tracing how the law develops and then once in place influences people's behavior in a way that ultimately generates outcomes. And, uh, you know, at that level, my goal is that hopefully if I can trace that or if I can contribute to our collective tracing of that, then we can uh, change the law for the better to make the world better. And that's the dream really hard to do. I am very focused in, in that tracing on uh, the world of health law. You know, specifically, I'm very focused on money, on fiscal issues, and the role of money in the formation of law, the laws we have in place, and then uh, the outcomes in terms of human behavior. Uh, so when I say I research kind of health law, fiscal administrative law, and addictions as three subject areas, in a way, those are different points on the on the kind of policy to the personal chain that I try to I try to get all three so I can, can so I can do that tracing work. So fiscal administrative law would be the kind of most abstract in my world. It's how are the laws and rules in the health law space that govern healthcare financing coming into be and what are they? And then health law is what are those, you know, rules and laws uh, when it comes to healthcare financing. And then when I say addictions, it's, it's within the world of health law, I, I try to focus on 
when the rubber hits the road, you know, how are we treating addictions in the healthcare space? What's actually happening? And to match up my kind of granular description just there with my earlier very theoretical one, you know, the goal is if I can trace it or at least get in little insights, you know, all the way from the top, here's how some rule of administrative law that seems very abstract and irrelevant, here's how actually it's having a huge impact on who is able to get treatment for uh, substance use disorder, you know, in the state of, you know, Georgia or something like that by way of the IMD exclusion and the requirement for a Medicaid waiver, blah, 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 blah. So those are, uh, well, I guess two versions of, of what I study. And, you know, the core, the core keywords there are health law, fiscal administrative law, and addictions. Can you tell me a bit more about the addictions piece of it and how you use your background in law to study human behavior? Because that sounds almost like sociology to me. Not that research has yeah. to be clearly divided into different, you know, genres. Yeah. yeah. In our healthcare system, we rely on private sector or otherwise market-oriented insurers to provide treatment for mental health and substance use disorder. So there's a kind of economics component that we're, we're using these businesses whose incentives we can start to understand using economics to provide mental health coverage and, and substance use disorder coverage. And there's a recognition, I think, that one, we have a big gap in our treatment for substance use disorder that we, we simply don't, we don't have enough. People who have substance use disorder do not get access to treatment anywhere near as often as they should. Uh, and then that creates a question of what is the role of this insurance system that we use to provide that treatment or, or to cover it, to provide access to it. What is the role of, of, of that in, in our failure? You know, going back to the responsive state, what is our role? What is the role of that system in the failure of our apparatus to provide sufficient treatment? And then how could we change it in order to, you know, try to promote treatment? And I've really very, con I think, consistent. It's been helpful thinking about vulnerability theory. Been thinking about the laws we use to try to regulate insurers and how they make decisions about something like treatment for substance use disorder. So, or let's say alcohol use disorder. Somebody has a problem with alcohol. Uh, the physician says you need, um, you need 30 days of inpatient care and the insurer denies it. You know, that's a, that's a very concrete obstacle. And what is the role of the law in, you know, trying to prevent wrongful denials, permit rightful denials and those kinds of questions. Uh, and then, you know, rather than let this answer go on too long, I'll highlight, you know, something I've been focused on is one way to deal with promoting kind of treatment through insurance is to say that insurers are not allowed to discriminate against people with substance use disorder or treatment for substance use disorder. They shouldn't go around denying treatment for that wrongfully. And we should have a law that says that we do. We have different versions of what are called parity laws that say something like that. And that is like in civil rights law, the law that says the employer shall not discriminate. And if they do, they'll get in trouble. Mm -hmm. And what vulnerability theory uh, often emphasizes is, well, you know, it's important to look at that kind of downstream, you know, end of the day result. But we should also look, you know, upstream at, at, at why is the employer discriminating? What is our system in place? Uh, why are the choices being made in the first place? Especially because you cannot catch every wrongful action. Uh, it's really hard to catch 
uh, you know, inappropriate actions. Uh, you might only catch a fraction of them. And so, uh, you know, I've, I've had a couple of papers in the Journal of Law, Medicine, and Ethics here at this kind of micro point of, well, how do we encourage treatment through insurance? Yes, it's important to address discrimination when it happens, but we should also look at the insurer's incentives. And there are systems we currently use, which are these kind of regulatory systems, I will start to bore you, called risk adjustment, that uh, take as a premise that insurers, insurers, because they pay claims, they lose money on sick people. They have an incentive to try to attract healthy people to their plans and maybe to get rid of sick people, uh, which is called uh, cherry picking and lemon dropping in kind of economic parlance. And uh, you know, a risk adjustment system says, oh, I see that you have an incentive. You actually, if someone who has, let's say, diabetes or someone who has mental illness enrolls in your plan, that costs you money. So that's actually messing with your incentives, just as a purely economic matter, because um, it, may, it may not seem so concerning to you if you don't provide very good coverage for mental illness, and that means that people with mental illness don't enroll in your plan. You as an insurer might see that as a good result because hopefully from your perspective, maybe there's people who are not going to incur claims that do enroll and that will be who you have in your pool. So I've certainly bored you, but risk adjustment comes in and it's a series of laws that, that change the payments insurers make based on the health status of the enrollee to try to change the insurer's underlying incentive to, to reprogram the way they think about things. So for example, in Medicare Advantage today, if an insurer enrolls somebody who has diabetes, they're going to get an extra payment of something like $3,000 for having done that. Mm-hmm. And the, the goal of that is they will no longer have an incentive to discriminate in the administration of their plan or the design of their plan against somebody who has diabetes. They will now, um, they will now actually maybe even want the person with diabetes because they're going to get the extra $3,000 for having enrolled them. And I've been exploring, there's, there's some ways that the current risk adjustment systems are very limited when it comes to substance use disorder and mental illness. And uh, I've had a couple of papers kind of exploring how those laws could be changed in order to do a better job of that. One of the, I guess before COVID-19 and before um, all of the Black Lives Matter protests, one of the other issues that was very high, I think, in the American conscious was the opioid crisis. How does this risk adjustment impact that? And do you think that it is one of the main causes or one of the main exacerbators of that crisis? Yeah, we could talk all day. I'll note a first just really interesting question that I think that I have not thought that much about, but would like to about what vulnerability theory has to say about it. The question is kind of how you frame that problem. Uh, Is it the opioid crisis? Is it the substance use disorder, you know, crisis? You know, do you even use the word crisis? Is it the mental health treatment coverage? or mental health, you know, crisis, or uh, um, is it a larger issue? It, it gets called uh, diseases of despair um, from work by Case and Deaton that, well, it's both, um, you know, it's, it's substance use disorder, it's alcohol use disorder, it's also suicide uh, and violence that are all kind of correlated and increasing, and maybe there's, there's a common underlying cause to those. First, I'll just note that kind of interesting kind of question. And, and in a way, it's not just what word do you use. This goes back to what we're talking about narrative. The word you use, and I know I've learned a lot about this from Talib El-Sabawi, who's at Elan University. You know, the word you use, the way you frame the problem, that's going, to the way, that's going to frame the way you think about the solution. The law is sometimes playing a big part in that by framing the you know, problems and framing the solutions. 
okay, I'll, I'll move on from that point and get back to your specific question, which is what is the role of the risk adjustment process I was talking about with regards to, you know, substance use disorder, mental health treatments, and so on. I think the way I'm framing it, it's how are we building our system for providing treatment? It's that kind of like, is this an inherently resilient system or are we creating a system that's going to have flaws and going to have problems in it? And the answer is when we rely on the market, we're getting benefits from doing that, but we're also, we're creating costs. We're creating some of these problems. And, and then how do you fix it? Instead of looking all the way downstream at the individual acts, it's also looking upstream and saying, well, if you have that system, maybe you have an increased responsibility to counteract, you know, its negative impacts, especially on particular populations. So uh, I know my thread has jumped around a little bit, but that's my best effort to uh, quickly answer that question. Thank you. What would you like the impact of your research to be? Although I feel like you've been talking about that this entire interview. I think about the impacts of my work that I aspire to in two categories. The first is the impacts on the law and through the law on, on real world outcomes on people's lives. And uh, essentially, I am, when I trace, and when I try to help us trace how the law influences behavior and then affects people's lives, I'm trying to inform courts, legislators, law professors, lawyers, law students, all about that interaction with the hope that they might change, you know, or that it'll, it'll help us to uh, make our next change better. And then the, that's the first category, which I think of as kind of the applied category. And the second category, which I think of as, as sort of the theoretical category, is when, I make, when I'm doing that tracing work, I, I really rely heavily on theory, like vulnerability theory, to help me trace what's happening and also to, to come up with ways to think about what's happening that will be easily translated to others or easier for me to just understand uh, so in a way, I think about it like a flashlight, like the theory is a flashlight helping me to, to understand what's happening in a particular place. And not in all of my work, but in some of it, I find that, that using theory to understand some area of the law also teaches me something about theory or, or requires a change to the theory that might also be interesting to other legal scholars working in a completely different area of the law, but also using that theory. The second way I try to steer my scholarship to have an impact is to uh, highlight those areas that, you know, I've found where what's happening in the real world requires a change to or rethinking of um, some aspect of, of our theory for how we understand it. What are some current issues to which you see vulnerability theory applied or think it should be applied to? Let me talk more broadly about healthcare. We already talked, the biggest current issues you know, today, and, and I expect for, for um, hopefully for a long time, are um, structural racism uh, and also public health. But let me talk about a specific issue that I think vulnerability theory is really helpful for, which is just healthcare and health law. And, and maybe I can contrast a little bit vulnerability theory with other theoretical approaches. So if you just take the question of uh, healthcare and who should pay for it, and you say maybe, well, people should pay for some of their health care. This is the common answer in the United States today. People should pay for some of their health care, but the government should pay when they can't or it should generally pay. And we wind up with this system where uh, kind of the government subsidizes 
either through employers or through government programs. The government subsidizes much health care, but then some, which gets a, called cost sharing, some of the costs of care are left to individuals. You know, medical bills that you get from your deductible, from your copay, from your cost sharing or something like that. That is, I think, going to continue to be. We've seen a lot of discussion about Medicare for all. You get discussion about the Affordable Care Act. It's, it's continuing to be a real source of harm for people, the way our healthcare system is currently designed. There's people who hurt, who are hurt, not just by illness, but also by the system we have in place to try to address illness. Uh, they get hurt because they can't financially handle the bills that they get or because of the process they have to do, go through to get care or because they can't get care. Uh, so I don't expect that to go away as an underlying issue. And, you know, I'll just offer for brave listeners who've, who've come this far that vulnerability theory is a really helpful tool for thinking about that issue because it focuses us on different things and important things than the traditional law and economics way of thinking about health insurance and, um, you know, what, what share of health insurance costs individuals should bear. So, you know, the way I would, the way I think about it, the way I would walk through it, and, and this is sort of a personal evolution is I worked on a paper that's in the Harvard Law and Policy Review on, uh, I called it health, Insur- health insurance's social consequences problem. And it talks about medical billing and how to work through it. Um, and uh, if you just think about like law and economics and markets and incentives, you'd say, well, uh, yes, we should pay for people's health care, but we should give them an incentive to avoid wasteful care. So yes, let's have them pay a deductible and cost sharing. And that's kind of the traditional law and economics bill that gets you the system we have. I think that's a very uh, strong viewpoint today. Another, I love, uh, there's so much great legal scholarship, so I apologize for keeping dropping these issues, but it, it, feels, it feels misleading for me to talk about these things without, without crediting underlying sources that are, have been really useful for me. So Chris Robertson has a book called Exposed on Health Insurance and How It Works. And there's that dominant law and economics view. Yes, okay, we should maybe pay for people's health insurance, but they should pay for some of it. And then, you know, add to that theory the kind of behavioral law and economics that says, well, just thinking about markets and dollars and cents, that misses something. Because, for example, when people are getting a lot of bills in the mail, there's, there's a burden to that. There's like a, it gets called a cognitive burden or a cognitive load that just getting all these bills, you know, especially when you're sick, is confusing and it's, it's hard to keep up with them and you're adding stress. So you need to think about that and, and account for it. And that's what the kind of behavioral economics theory starts to show. And, and that's as far as the kind of economics flashlight gets, which is kind of at the fringes to try to add something like cognitive burden. And what um, vulnerability theory does is it's, just, it's a different way of looking at things that's going to start off with the core goal, which is we are trying to help address people's vulnerability to illness. And the, the state is having an obligation to do that. That's the responsive state. And the question is, how is it doing it? And one thing that vulnerability theory immediately starts to show you is, well, it sounds like we're building a system to try to help you know, people suffering with illness that's requiring those individuals themselves to jump through a lot of hoops. It's creating a lot of harms itself. And vulnerability theory lets you kind of elaborate on those without being constrained by the underlying kind of incentive framework for, for decisions. And then second vulnerability theory is going to tell you, you know, also you can't just look at the individual who's sick. It's probably, I think in truth, it's, it's the minority of cases where that is an individual who's sick. There's, there's a loved one 
who is caring for them, who's probably driving them to doctor's appointments, taking time off. It's hurting household finances or it's hurting a family's finances or a friend is, is paying for some of the recovery program or something like that. And so you need to think about that full range of impacts, which will include not just the deductible and things like that, but, but all of the lost work and all the harms of uh, having to deal with the illness. And it really starts to put a point on how good a job are we dealing with those things? For those listeners who are intrigued by this, you know, Elizabeth Warren in her academic career wrote about medical bankruptcy and how often people wind up going bankrupt because of medical bills. That's a really different way to think about, you know, cost sharing and whether it's good or bad than the, than the way of thinking about it that economics gives us, which is, well, will it help avoid wasteful care? Not saying that's not an important question, not saying that's not a useful way to think about it, but with vulnerability theory, it's, it's a flashlight that's showing us just a whole different not only just a whole different kind of side of the question or, or area of the park, or I don't know what people are thinking about if they're following my flashlight metaphor, uh, but it's also almost showing us different things about what we do see. It's like turning on ultraviolet light or something, and you just get to see different things that you were missing. So I think that I don't have the expertise beyond healthcare, and I only have expertise in certain areas of healthcare. But I think that, that healthcare is not the only area where there's a lot of what's happening that we're not capturing in our current ways of thinking about them, that we could improve a lot with more inclusive ways of thinking about the interaction between law and behavior in the world and how, and how people are living in it. And that a tool like vulnerability theories is really a useful one for shedding light on all of that, which I think might help. That's my sense that, that some of the frustration people feel, you know, people feel frustrated with, they, with the way the world is, but then the language we kind of use to describe the way the world is, it's hard to identify the problem uh, or to talk constructively about it. And that's why I see a lot of hope in these kind of alternative uh, viewpoints. Is there anything yeah. else you'd like to talk about? <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, I'd like to return maybe to the, to the theme you were drawing off earlier about systems in academia and I'll say it's been my experience that another big benefit of being engaged with vulnerability theory is that I have found in that world that there are a lot of scholars and advocates who think about things in similar ways to the way I do and the way I was just riffing on, you know, about how you have to, you know, you're missing things and there's things that are invisible in this way, of, you know, help to see them. I, I have found a lot of people like that in this community who aren't necessarily in my area, you know, of healthcare law. And it's hugely useful. It's really helpful to, to engage with other people who are thinking about different problems in similar ways. Uh, and I found that to be a really big benefit of, of this area. And so I hope that, you know, listeners to this podcast who, who think I, there's some story I should realize exists or I'm missing something or anything like that from any field, I would really love to hear from and welcome that. That's a lovely invitation. What would you like listeners to remember about our conversation today? Just to close it out. Yeah, um, I, I would turn the question back around on you. What would you say the two themes, you know, or, or one or two themes or something that, that you think are keywords to take away? And at least that'll help me stall and think of something. <laughs> wow, no one's ever done that before. Well, what was really interesting for me was hearing more about how it's not just the economic consideration when it comes to insurance policies. I thought it was really interesting to think about 
the different ways in which some of these incentives can um, get insurance companies to make different decisions about who they're denying care to. And also just taking into consideration all of that unpaid labor that does exist and that does go into caring for people when they get sick. Like you talked a little bit about folks who have to take time off of work to drive people, to drive their relatives or friends to and from appointment. Um, and how it's so much more than just looking at, well, let's do the cost benefit analysis or let's put a financial incentive here or a financial burden there to get people to change their behavior. Although that is also helpful. Yeah, maybe that, that helps feed into what I'm thinking as a, as, a, as a wrap up, which is from my perspective anyway, a lot of these questions that get raised when you say, we need to really think about everything that's happening, about all the ways people are vulnerable, all of the forms of dependence, all of the ways the state and we as society can respond to that. Uh, there's a lot of really hard questions that require you to go outside your comfort zone, which is, which is the way we currently talk about things, which misses a lot. And uh, I find that intimidating as an academic because it's so hard to you know, go outside that comfort zone and, and come back with something concrete that I feel like, you know, I can communicate is really useful. But I also find it kind of um, encouraging because it means there is a lot of work out there for anybody interested in this area to do and that there's really value in doing it. So I guess that would be kind of the takeaway is, is I hope that listeners um, will, uh, one, forgive uh, all the things I, I don't know, uh, and two, um, I hope to, to run into the listeners themselves in their, in the, in their work to, to help us better understand the world. Thank you. I also really enjoyed your flashlight metaphor because it does really highlight, you'll pardon my pun there, um, how it is that working in a specific field can really limit your, your ability to see how all these things interact with each other. And even when you shift to another area, of study, you're still limited to just what that area of study can provide you. So I think it's it's really helpful to use different um, modes of analyzing all of all of these issues and to draw from many different um, areas of study because that is really helpful and that's not something that we really are taught. You know, in every class that I've been in in law school or in undergrad, it's always been, well, now we are working in this specific subject. So these are the parameters that we will use. And this is, these are the tools we'll use to look at these things. And there isn't a lot of crossover. But like you were saying, in the world of vulnerability theory, in that area of scholarship, people are, there's a, there's a lot more synthesis and, and fusion. And because of that, people are looking at the bigger picture. I think that that was very well put and, you know, deconstruction followed by synthesis and fusion. That sounds like a great, you know, overview of, of, of what we're going for here. So, so thanks for sharing. Is there anything else you want to add on or anything else you'd like to? I don't think so, but I'll say that I really appreciate the opportunity to, you know, join you on this podcast, this conversation. And um, I'm sure that I'm going to be walking the dogs later or something and have some idea that I would never have had uh, if we hadn't had this conversation, which, you know, um, uh, which I'm thankful for. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be on this podcast. I appreciate that. This has been an episode of Voices and Vulnerability. Expect a new episode every month. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative. 
and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Thanks for tuning in.